Hello and welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast, a show where we bring you insights from media industry experts to help journalists do their jobs better. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. Today, we're going to be talking about covering LGBTQ plus stories in parts of the world where same-sex relations are outlawed. If you are following the World Cup, you will have noticed that the host country, Qatar, is receiving a lot of media attention for its poor human rights, migrants' rights and LGBTQ plus rights record. It's the latter one that we will zone in on today. Qatar is an Islamic state where homosexuality is illegal and punishable with jail time. We're going to be chatting to Michael McCann, a sports commentator, presenter and journalist who used to work for the Qatari broadcaster Be In Sports. Michael is also a bisexual journalist who, during his one year in the country, had to keep his sexuality secret. He reveals to us that there is an LGBTQ community in Qatar, only they're living in hiding. For journalists, this means there are many important stories to be told long after the World Cup ends. So how do we sustain our scrutiny of the subject? Well, part of the answer lies in looking at our own attitudes at home, as well as examining and calling out other parts of the world. Don't go anywhere. Michael, welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, thank you for having me. Pleasure to be speaking to you. Michael, I understand that a little known fact about you is that when you were four years old or five, four to five, you started to learn the violin. Tell us more. Yeah, from a, an incredibly young age, I was basically forced initially and then later on, slightly more in my own will, played the violin right through my childhood. Um, anyone who's seen kids with musical instruments will know that there comes a point where they have to do it for themselves. But it takes a while to get them even near to that. From a, a relatively limited level of ability, managed to somehow get myself up towards the uh, the echelons of grade eight, which I failed the first time I did it with 98. I was failed by two marks. That's that's very impressive because I only managed grade four on the drums. So to get to, get to grade eight is, is a hell of an achievement. In terms of achievement relative to ability, it, it's probably still up there with one of my proudest achievements. What impresses me the most is I have a five-year-old and I cannot imagine him picking up a violin and playing it. And all jokes aside for a second, I actually um, really enjoyed it. And I look back on it with a lot of fondness now. I still have my violin and play a little bit. And, um, you know, it teaches you a lot of things about yourself because sport or the sports that I were playing were very team orientated. And suddenly you had this skill that was very individual and you needed to practice a lot to become sort of good and there was a tipping point as there often is for kids with musical instruments where you get to a point where you can just about hear that maybe you don't sound completely awful especially for violin which is if you if you, if you don't play a violin well oh yeah very screechy and horrendous my goodness like our house would not have been a fun place to be in listening to this like being woken up by this every morning for for family um it's a great piece of trivia michael Michael is bisexual, but he did not come out until 2020, after his time in Qatar came to an end. He says that he went there with an open mind, on the assurance that he'd be working within a supportive team, and on the mixed but overall positive advice of trusted professionals. After all, there was a big career opportunity to work with Be In, a major sports broadcaster in a country that would soon host the biggest sporting event in the world. However, his time there was far from easy. Like any LGBTQ person working in Qatar, he had to keep his sexuality a secret. But he did learn that the country had an underground and fragmented LGBTQ community living in fear of being found out. 
obviously nothing could quite prepare you for hearing about a place on the other side of the world and then actually being there and um probably matured me about a decade in just over a year in terms of just everything you saw out there some of the experiences that I had what did you see what did you experience I knew that I wasn't probably heterosexual but I hadn't come out um you know, it had a family that were unfortunately very homophobic consistently and so feared that reaction, was working in sport, so definitely feared that reaction. One interesting side angle to this is I think a lot of people don't, in who I talk to who are friends of mine who are news journalists, entertainment journalists, don't actually realise how far behind sport is when it comes to LGBTQ plus issues, representation, visibility in the newsroom understanding those perspectives, considering it important. Um, there's there's definitely an old guard in sport that just thinks, well, well, why does it matter? But in terms of my experience out there, I really made a conscious effort to get to know LGBTQ plus people and the sort of stories they told me, some of the things I I saw that will never leave me. Like what? It mainly revolves around you've got people being repeatedly fearing being honey-trapped. For those who don't understand that term, would you explain what honey-trapping is? Yeah, of course. So broadly speaking around essentially luring somebody who is not straight via one of various means, and this might actually surprise people. I often sometimes forget to mention it, but... You know, dating apps are still a thing in Qatar. You can use Tinder, which I remember someone telling me that when I first came over and I sort of thought it was just, a, you know, them trying to find a lighthearted kind of joke. Um, and so often these kind of things are used by the police, by the security services to lure somebody to meet them and then um people end up you know there is a a conversion center um people end up basically essentially disappearing and there is an lgbtq plus community out there but it's so fractured forgive me if this is not a delicate way of phrasing it but it's essentially a way of smoking out lgbtq plus people right that's the way of putting it yeah i mean it's basically trying to sort of lure people out so people are just people just living in constant fear and it's pretty unsurprising that the first mm. publicly out gay Qatari, which is Dr. Nas Mohammed, who's doing excellent work with the Al One Foundation that is campaigning on these issues in the Gulf, uh, has left and he won't return. Um, and what we're seeing in this World Cup repeatedly is stories of anybody who has anything out that even remotely looks like a rainbow are having someone from the police and security forces immediately speak to them. Now, to the wider world, this is something of a shock. To anyone that's actually lived in Doha, they tell you that this is not a surprise at all because even within the LGBTQ plus people I got to know, you pretty much never saw a rainbow. I mean, unless it was hidden in an extremely private way because, you know, we're we're already seeing plenty of examples of... You know, the Wales fans with the bucket hats. Um, there was a Danish TV reporter the other night who actually just wa- was wearing the One Love armband for a TV piece. And immediately, before he even had the chance to shoot the piece, had a, a security guard speaking to him. And what you're seeing is 
you know, FIFA had essentially seemed to promise that these labels around a stadium would be okay because under FIFA's rules of a major tournament, they should be. And yet, even within those spaces of major stadiums, it's basically not, which, again, you know, wouldn't really surprise anyone who's been out there that there was always going to be this very obvious sense of conflict in this regard. It was obvious a mile off. Michael did manage to build a number of LGBTQ plus contacts in Qatar, not for work purposes, it's worth pointing out, but many of whom he connected to fellow journalists for stories. Many others understandably declined, too afraid to speak out. But it raises an intriguing question. Who makes the first move? How do you make the first point of contact about a topic that is both taboo and illegal, one that could arouse suspicion to even speak about? It kind of started with meeting one person who's a part of that community and basically having conversations with them, it became relatively clear that they wished that certain things in Doha were quite different. They were pretty young and liberal. They were actually at one of the American universities out there. Those American unis were kind of hubs of more liberal and less conservative points of thought. It's not surprising. You've got younger students. You've also got the fact they've chosen to go to an American university. Um, and basically, they sort of hinted at passing towards that subject. And I'd like to think maybe given I knew what I really was, which was that I was likely, if not certainly, LGBTQ+. plus. It was maybe easier for me than others to talk very convincingly as if I was a very good ally because... You know, certainly was. And I think they, I'd like to think they quickly realised that they were sort of in a safe space speaking to me. Do you, do you not think they were afraid of being honey trapped and being lured into coming out? They were, but I, as a figure for being involved in that, would be somewhat unlikely in the sense that it would seem slightly unusual for a, a journalist working in sport to suddenly be kind of going out of their way as I was to repeatedly having a conversation for someone for them to do this. Um, and then it's just one of those where they introduce you, you speak to somebody else, and then it kind of becomes a little bit like a snowball rolling down the hill. Um, albeit, you know, we're not talking about tons of people here, but we're talking about a decent number. Um, and the longer you kind of spend time chatting to them privately about it, the slightly more comfortable they become and they'll open up a little bit more and then you start to think about well okay well I would love to help more on this but there is a practical element to this whereby I myself you know can't and that's where finding people who I knew could write about this write about this with sensitivity write about this understanding came in and I passed various of those sources on who were then used in pieces that had pretty prominent often sort of global exposure in terms of actually highlighting these people's voices and that really is actually the most important thing that I think sometimes as well is being lost in the discussion around this and the way things are being discussed it's at you know it's Dr Nas Mohammed and it's LGBTQ plus Qatari's voices their big fear which is very understandable is for a lot of them, can't by any means speak for all of them, but it's you know it's a common discussion point. Is there going to be a backlash after the World Cup? The world's eyes might have potentially moved on, and we'll actually be left more vulnerable than ever. And 
I still think to this day that's a very understandable fear and worry and concern for them to have. That's very, very interesting. And I want to build on that a little bit because we are seeing this hotspot of attention on Qatar, a lot of scrutiny on their LGBTQ plus uh, rights in the country as well as human rights more more generally. So how big of a moment is this for us to seize is essentially what I'm asking you. It's definitely important that people and tournaments that decide they're going to welcome the world have to carry with that the responsibility that that brings. And my hope is that this World Cup properly sets a trend where global sporting events consistently get the appropriately high level of scrutiny that must come with doing that. The conversation's now gone beyond the initial issues, but also how this has been managed by FIFA and the situation that played out with the armbands and FIFA you know, basically blackmailing these nations not to do that. But it's worth even saying on that topic, the armband is not really an LGBTQ plus thing. I mean, it says one love and it's kind of got some colours splattered on it, but it's not actually even a rainbow. And it kind of says a lot about where men's sport is on a wider level, that that's what we're talking about as being, you know, this great symbol of, of protest. So, the, so, I mean, I take from that there's work to be done both, you know, excuse the pun, home and away here. Um, it's, it's, it's sorting out our own house here in the UK as well as applying scrutiny to what's happening abroad. I think it's definitely about applying scrutiny everywhere. And, you know, there might be a lot of people listening to this, particularly maybe UK-based in terms of media, who want to kind of dismiss that any of these issues relate to them. Oh, well, we're so much better than that kind of thing. That is a, a mentality and an idea that also actually makes me quite uncomfortable in the sense that there is huge challenges and problems. You know, speaking as an LGBTQ plus journalist who works in men's and women's sport, it's two different worlds. And one thing I really have visibly noticed in quite a depressing way is going from being someone who a lot of male sports journalism colleagues would have presumed is straight because there's kind of this societal thing that people just presume everyone's straight which by the way is not a good way to go around being but it's just the way society is and for years kind of did that and I noticed that once I came out the way they would talk to me the way they would talk about me the way I was referred to the assumptions for why I was there totally changed overnight in late 2020 that's not to say everybody by any means but a high number of people in terms of just the little things that they'd say. One tiny example, it's the kind of things that people would say thinking that it's a joke. And you're just like, well, I'm actually in a professional environment here trying to do my job. And you would repeatedly try and explain that this is pretty ignorant and not right. And it would just kind of continue. And I, I think this is actually a dilemma that a lot of LGBTQ plus journalists have working in sport and I definitely have it as well um, and it's a classic with anyone in the industry who's from a minority group often is there's so many different things going on how do you speak out when do you speak out and how do you try and do it in a way where it's not sort of spun that you're just a troublemaker who's causing a load of problems that is changing men's sport but really compared to society wider society it's changing at a glacial pace and that definitely does need to change. And a lot of it comes back to 
representation in newsrooms. You know, frequently, even now, you see things from media outlets, particularly relating to sport in this community, where you read it and you think, oh my goodness, if they'd have literally bothered to like speak to and listen to sports media LGBT or just have one person from that group in their organization. Any, any stark examples that come to mind? A very obvious one, which shows that in terms of understanding LGBTQ plus people's place in men's sport, a place they're having to very much fight for more than ever with recent events, would be the consistent stories around who's going to come out, who's going to come out. You know, we see this repeatedly in various UK newspapers and outlets, sort of speculation. Anyone that's spoken to anyone that's come out before would tell you having constant speculation about who is it, who is it, who is it is the number one way to create an environment where someone doesn't feel comfortable to come out. You repeatedly get UK-based newspapers and outlets that, you know, there's like a random anonymous quote, you know, a picture of a footballer with a greyed out background seen this quote from to an effect from tons of women's footballers because there's just so much more understanding of sexuality in that space just saying the way people come out is by changing the environment and that's a more uncomfortable conversation that a lot of people don't want to have because they have to actually admit that they're quite ignorant about this issue and don't really understand it Michael's message is crystal clear. Scrutiny needs to be applied everywhere. Even if our home country's attitudes are not perfect, we should still be allowed to criticise what is happening elsewhere. In the UK, ignorance and prejudice do exist, particularly within sports media. Whether it's the constant guessing game of who's coming out, stripping power away from players who want to come out on their own terms, or as Michael also tells me, assumptions about football chants in stadiums. Football has a long culture of banter from fans in the stadium, aimed at both your own players and the opposition's. Some journalists have suggested that, in order for more gay players to come out, they should accept the ribbing from the stands as either banter or a compliment. Michael says that such a position would not wash if it was about race or ethnicity, so why should it about sexual identity? It's not something people can accept so easily. It's this kind of ignorance that demands greater diversity in the newsroom to sense-check these attitudes. But coming back to Qatar, after the convenience of the world's biggest football event, what stories are there left to be told in the region? And how should the media go about it? My strongest recommendation would be to start by checking out and paying close attention to Dr. Nas Mohammed and the Alwan Foundation. Dr. Nas Mohammed is the first publicly out gay Qatari. Uh, he fled and left. He won't be coming back because of what he's inevitably faced as a result of that he's the founder of the foundation i mentioned they're campaigning for lgbtq plus rights across the gulf region that is the single best point of resource in terms of trying to keep up the momentum beyond the world cup where he sort of started uh, the proud maroons as it's called which is basically qatar's lgbtq plus supporters group the supporters group of a national football team who would not want them Maroon, of course, being a very iconic colour of their, their flag. That's what it relates to. Yes, yeah, exactly. And um, I would say that any journalist covering this story, anyone starting to want to raise awareness should probably start there. And I found it quite troubling, the amount of um, Western outlets, if you want to call them that, that have been all too happy to to talk about this, to jump on this, because it's the disgust issue of the moment. And yet, they haven't even mentioned that and they haven't really actually made any attempt to discuss or think of 
LGBTQ plus Qataris, they've just wanted to cover it for saying that they've they've covered it in that moment. And that foundation is the most tangible, obvious way that things can actually potentially change for those people in the longer term and that their voices can be heard, you know, beyond all the chatter. And as I've already said, there's a real fear. You know, it's a discussion point often when I was in Doha, um, which is how things will look after the World Cup. And I think there's definitely a fear in a lot of quarters, that certainly in terms of LGBTQ plus rights, that's what will happen. I mean, obviously on a wider level, you know, there's human rights and workers' rights. Those issues have been discussed very well by a lot of very eloquent people in different places. You know, there has been some level of reforms, but there was only a few months back. You had a lot of workers that went on strike over unpaid wages and they got deported which I'm going to let that speak for itself. And obviously Amnesty are calling for FIFA to use a portion of prize money for compensation. Um, you know, whether that FIFA will actually do that is obviously a, a whole other conversation. But to me, coverage of that issue has to start with Dr. Nas Mohammed and those voices who are out there and work backwards from that. And one thing I find quite troubling is that a lot of outlets in covering this, it's quite clear that, They've decided they're going to cover it and broadcast, media, print, etc. But it's clear that they haven't really actually started with what's what's the real story and who's at the heart of it. And the people at the heart of it are not uh, you or I or somebody else uh, coming to it and reporting on it and being like, oh, there's this World Cup and look at this with LGBTQ plus rights. That's not right. It's actually the people who are, are facing that kind of reality every day of being hidden away and quite scared. Yeah. And I come back to that question about the first point of contact being such a such a crucial one in terms of coming across in the right way, making them aware that your intentions are, you know, um, the right ones. Any any tips? What I'd say is more than anything, it's really just trying to repeatedly make it clear to someone that you don't have an interest in doing anything that's going to harm them. And that regardless of wherever this discussion might lead, your primary thing is them and their well-being and their safety like i didn't get to know these people because in the end i wanted to pass some some of them on to a journalistic colleague to write a story about lgbtq plus qataris and the reality of being in doha and knowing what you were but not being by any means publicly out some of these people are sort of more acquaintances some of these people are still friends but they're genuinely friends but i i'd speak to you know, fair few of them pretty regularly. And I think when you are taking the time to get to know somebody like that and you're not trying to sort of push any kind of agenda or what you might want to use that contact or person for, that hopefully comes across in a way that makes it easier for them to trust you. And I think they could tell that basically my point of view on it was, you know, where I'm working and where I am extremely limits me in terms of where I am at this moment. But I'm really interested to sit around in the comfort of things privately and discuss things and how they are and your experiences. And then having done that between us collectively work out, okay, well, what could we do? What would you like to do? What are you comfortable to do? Everybody's different. It's a very individual thing. And some people, when the kind of idea of, you know, I have some journalistic colleagues, so I think we'll cover this and we'll cover this properly and I would brief them on it, but they're people I trust anyway. You know, would you be interested in talking? Some of those I know said, no, I don't even want to risk it because I fear 
calls being intercepted and this kind of thing and I don't even want to take that risk and some did which is completely fine um so I'd say a lot of it comes back to taking those interactions in zero part of a way of what's the end of this story yeah and I mean that that should work in a news reporting context as well surely yeah you'd like to think so um but you're yeah. right lower your expectations because it's is there's such a culture of fear here and people quite rightly would like to not go on the record about things so and i think the difficulty from knowing other people that have dealt with stuff like this before is that sometimes in the way media and journalists go about these things they're under such a pressure for a deadline for a story etc etc i've definitely heard plenty of stories where it kind of comes across that whoever they're speaking to pretty quickly comes across as like well, what can you do for me and can you do this and this and this and this and just basically push a source or a subject as far as you possibly can in quite a uh unpleasant kind of way and i think one thing that i'd like to think helped me out there um was that they could just see that i had no interest in doing that at all and that ultimately what i was interested in is is their well-being and if there was anything i could do meaningfully that might help then I would do it. Michael, thank you so much for your time today and speaking to me. It's been a real blast. Thank you. No worries. Thank you for having me on. We've heard a lot of good advice today, but I come back to the fear of being smoked out. It's asking a lot of LGBTQ plus people to speak up and share their stories from this part of the world. To earn their trust, you must lean on the reputation of yourself and the organisation you work for. Go in with zero expectations and constantly assure them of your best intentions. What did you learn today? DM or tweet me at JPG Journalism or my team at journalism.co.uk at Journalism News. If you'd like to feature on the show, we've got a topic or story you want us to cover on the podcast, do get in touch. I'm on jacob at journalism.co.uk. And finally, if you like what you heard today, you can check out more of our episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts by searching and subscribing to the journalism.co.uk podcast. That way, you won't miss our next exciting episode. But that's all we have time for this week. I've been your host, Jacob Granger. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.